It is Friday the 14th of June 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin and welcome to episode 44 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered a financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. So there was not much in the way of NZX news over the week. You've seen markets, equity markets worldwide bounce back and led by the United States bounce bounce back in, in the last couple of weeks in expectation of potential further interest rate cuts. And it just shows how difficult it is to predict interest rate movements because it was only a few months ago and at the start of the year or in, in December where the the market believed that interest rates were, were heading, heading higher and, and now the consensus, consensus seems to be that they're going lower again and my bet is that by the sometime between now and the end of the year that view would have changed again. So like, like I said, not much in the way of NZX news, although I did see that the famous New Zealand investor or New Zealand-born investor anyway, Ron Briley, is, is hanging up his boots. For the last little while, Briley's investment vehicle has been Mercantile Investments, which trades on the NZX and the ASX under the ticker code MVT. It looks like they're getting merged into a similar investment vehicle called Sand and Capital. I can't remember if I actually mentioned that last week or not. But anyway, short on news this week on the NZX. So what I'll do is a bit of an education episode on short selling. So it's not a topic that I've ever discussed before. And then I'll do a, a quick part two on, on the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting. So short selling, we'll, we'll start off with a, a conversation about that. I mean, if you're already familiar with short selling and, and, and what I'm going to say, then maybe this is an episode you can s- skip past. But what I was doing during the week is I was listening to a rival stock market podcast. And well, maybe the word rival is a, a bit harsh, but the, it's it's called Motley Fool Money. And there's two Motley Fool Monies and I was listening to the Australian version. It, it is very good. You should give it a listen. They focus on the ASX and they talk a lot about in, investing in general, but probably they, they focus more than what I probably do on the economy anyway. So they might talk about interest rates a lot more than what I would, for example. Anyway, I was listening to this rival ASX podcast and the questions surrounding short selling came up. The host of the podcast, and I'm not sure if they're reflecting their own view or Motley Fool's view, they, they, were, they were talking about short selling. And the hosts were very negative about short selling and, and went as far to say that it's an unnecessary part of capital markets and that it almost shouldn't be allowed to exist. And I found... I found myself interested in their views. I understand what they were saying, but I found myself disagreeing with a a lot of their points, even though I could understand it. So to to kick things off, what is short selling? So the aim of short selling is to profit from downward movements in in a stock price. So it's the opposite. It'll have the opposite impact on your brokerage account as what going long or buying a stock has. So if you short... $1,000 $1,000 worth of the company and it drops by 50%, then you've made $500 just as an example. And, and the math just works the, the, the same but in reverse. So most people can understand that bit quite easily. They get confused as to how it works on a practical level. And I can sum it up in one sentence. When you go short a stock, you are selling a company that you do not own. And that that's the first part people struggle with. How, how on earth can you sell something that you do not own so people just scratch their head so the easiest way to think about that is to bring it back to the real world imagine that your friend owned a company and you you felt the company was worth a lot less than what they could sell it for so your friend would loan you part of the company you would then have have that part of the company and you would sell it so say you sold it off for a hundred dollars so how does that look now you have a hundred dollars and you have 
and you have an outstanding loan. You sold the company, you got $100 and you got a loan to your friend because you owe your friend part of his company. You need to pay your friend back. So your next job is to find someone to buy the part of the company off you. You hunt around for a buyer and eventually find someone to buy the share. Well, it won't be off you actually, but you eventually find someone to buy the share for $50. And you complete the transaction and what do you have? Well, you've borrowed part of the company and you sold it for $100. You then find a buyer for it at $50 and they bought it off you. So the difference, which is $50, is your profit. Now, why would your friend loan you part of the company? They're obviously not going to do that for free or for no reason. So like any loan, you have to pay your friend some interest or else there's no no incentive to do it. So when you short something in the stock market, you normally have to pay interest. And here's another example. Say your mate has a piano and you know that you can sell the piano on Trade Me for $1,000. You take that piano and you sell it for $1,000. So now you've got $1,000 and no piano. But the problem is you still have to give your mate a piano because they've lent you a piano. But luckily, you know someone that imports the same same piano, it looks the same, it's exactly the same, but it'll only cost you $500. Jackpot, you import the piano, you pay the importer $500, you give your mate back the piano and you pocket the $500 difference. Your friend is happy because he has made some money because you paid him a little loan to... You pay him a little, little bit of money to loan the piano. And in this case, he obviously didn't mind that he, was, <laughs> he wasn't able to play the piano for a while. So that's a different story. Um, Bill Ackman, he explains this really well in the Netflix documentary, Being on Zero. If, if you haven't seen this, man, it's, it's a good documentary. I'd really recommend that you watch it. And I'll read now his explanation. I'm pretty much quoting him from word to word. Short selling. Imagine for a moment that a friend of yours collects rare coins. And you have the view that those coins are going to go down in value. So the way you would short those coins is to call your friend and say, can I borrow a few of your coins? And he says, sure. And you borrow the coins. You sell them for the $1,000 each that they sell for in the market at the time. And then you wait for for them to drop in value because that's what you thought was going to happen, remember. And then you turn out to be right and the coins dropped in value to $500. You go back to the market and you buy them back for $500. You've sold them for $1,000 and you've repurchased them for $500. You make $500 on each coin. And then you return the coins to your friend. Your friend is in the same place he was when he started and he has the same number of coins that he started with. And you might actually pay him something for borrowing the coins he has loaned them to you. So you might pay him an interest rate. He is happy because he has made an interest rate lending you the coins. You have made money profiting from the decline in value of the coins and that is short selling. That is when it works. So I'll focus on the last thing Ackman said there. That is short selling, that is when it works. So short selling is often said to be riskier than buying stocks out, outright. And, and if done randomly, it is. And the way to think about it, and the, 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 the math makes it so, the way to think about it is that when you short sell, everything is the opposite. When you go long a stock, your maximum upside is affinity and the maximum downside is if the stock goes to zero. So the opposite is true when short selling. The maximum downside is affinity and the max of upside is 100% if the stock goes to zero. So if you short a stock at $100 a share and that stock turns out to be worth zero, you're going to make 100%. But if you short a stock at $100 a share and it goes to $100,000 a share, you've got 
a lot of a lot of ups a lot of downsides sorry so it is is riskier also because you have to pay interest on a on a loan of of short selling which you don't have to do when you go long a stock and since everything is opposite you also need to pay dividends if it's a dividend payer so i think another major risk in short selling is that everyone's working against you so remember when you when you're short selling a company in theory everyone in the company from the ceo down is is working to make that a better operation and in theory better operations and time should be worth more so in a lot of cases when you're short selling you, you truly are going uh, against the crowd i mean in, in my opinion I'm, I'm no short seller or anything like that but good short selling is not as risky as what i've described but i'll come back to good good oh sh- we'll get onto it now so when when should one short sell and i think the wrong reasons is for valuation so when you short for valuation you you, you essentially look at a stock and you say wow, it's trading on 100 times earnings and it's not growing, that's clearly worth too much, I'm going to short it, as an example. Um, you know, maybe shorting some of those marijuana companies uh, on, on their way out would have been an extremely risky thing to do, for example. So especially, I think it is very risky to, to short something that has a high valuation that underneath it's a, it's a very good company. And it can work, of course, and and maybe it does more often than not. But imagine if you'd shorted Amazon and stayed short Amazon because of valuation reasons. You would have been saying for for the last twenty years that it's overvalued on a traditional metrics basis. And there's an old saying in the market that it can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent, and that would would have been, certainly been the 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 case in the case of Amazon and and as it turned out the market wasn't irrational because Amazon probably did not turn out to be overpriced at all because you know you're you're looking at 30 billion dollars of cash flow whatever they got now so when you short a stock I think there are two scenarios two reasons you should do it the first is that you figure out something that's fraudulent or close to fraudulent going on it doesn't even have to be fraudulent but something where there is something system systemically wrong with the company and that the market hasn't picked up on and it can't justify the price where it's trading. Now, you could argue that's called overvaluation as well, but I think it's a, a something with a catalyst there is what I'm trying to say. So it has to be either a catalyst or where it's just built on a pack of cards. And, you know, you, you think of examples like CBL Insurance in, in New Zealand or Get Swift in Australia, that would have been... A, a good short as an example or imagine if you'd figured out something was up at Enron back in the day perhaps the you know and 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 if you'd shorted those you know you would have made quick money and it would have been an absolute certainty if you'd figured it out I think the other time to do it is is when a company is no longer sustainable in, in an industry and this is just my anecdotal experience more than anything else or at least no longer sustainable with the same competitive advantage that it used to be if you think of examples like GameStop in the United States or, or Sears an example or you know HMV in the in the United Kingdom that was a, a listed essentially CD and DVD company you know of, of course this is fraught with danger because you you do need to understand the valuation a bit more you know if if you short a company that's that's doomed but they get they have cash in the bank that's more than the market cap for example it's going to be tough so it's just just you know there's no clear-cut thing here now of course if you become good at this and i think one can then then it would make short and a lot less risky but i think for most people figuring out what good companies are and buying them at reasonable valuations is a lot easier so 
why, why do people have problems with short selling? And, and short sellers do get a lot of bad press. And a lot of the time, they're an easy scapegoat because when you think about it, at the end of the day, they're betting that a, a stock will go down or a company will fail, and, and that winds people up. And I've seen tweets from Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla, that and he essentially said that short selling should be illegal. I'll read one of one tweet from Musk here where he said, "Just want," and the, the, he didn't even write this right. I'm going to read it word from word. Just want to that the short seller enrichment commission is doing incredible work, and the name change is so on point. And that's a real tweet. Um, he's obviously making a, a, a word play on the regulator from the United States, the Securities Exchange Commission. He's calling the, the Short Seller Enrichment Commission. And Musk has also made a number of positive tweets in the past, seemingly with the knowledge, uh, positive tweets about Tesla, with the knowledge that it would make the Tesla stock pop and and hurt the short sellers. So he, he clearly hates them. And if that's what he's saying online, imagine what he's saying offline. And just looking online and, and having a look at the numbers earlier on, it looks like Tesla has about a quarter of its, I could be wrong about this, but a quarter of its outstanding shares held short. So it's a significant, uh, <laughs> it's a significant amount there. So and, and unless he just likes to disagree with everyone that has a different opinion to him, I, I do not really know why he or other people that uh, against short sellers do not like them. I mean, at the end of the day, what can they actually do to to hurt Elon or Tesla? I mean, the uh, unless there's something that's not right that he's trying to cover up. I mean, if they if the stock's held short, how does it actually hurt Tesla's operation? Unless they really want a high share price so they can raise capital, which could be the case. But how could, how does it actually hurt Tesla? And if he's confident that Tesla's going to perform well over the long term, he'll be advised to make his his own stock available short to, to short sellers for loans. That that means he would make some interest off them, shorting the company, and that, that would be the real way to get back at them. Um, but. And of course, if Tesla does turn out to be worth zero, then the short sellers will be right anyway. But that that will have little to do with the short sellers and actually the performance of the company itself, because you know at least you would make some interest of the company in that way. So it's a it's a it's a funny one to get your head around. And I guess some people just don't like the knowledge that people are going out and and betting against them in a, in a very big way, which is obviously what happens when that that higher percentage of your shares are, are held short. So a common grievance against short selling is research firms that come out with hit pieces. And that is companies that short large numbers of shares and then publish extensive research on the stock justifying their position. And this usually, especially if it comes from a a, a place that has a, a fair bit of following or a fair bit of money behind them, it, it usually causes the, the share price to crater. And I mean crater. I mean, going back to the Motley Fool Money po- podcast, this was their big grievance uh, against short sellers. And I do understand that view. And I can understand why people do not like companies that initiate large short positions and then publish their research amidst a, a storm of publicity. And But as, as the guys in Motley Fool pointed out, this is not different to publishing buy research and then promoting the stock heavily. You know, what, what's the difference there? And that happens all the time and no one has a problem with it. So the other reason why I do not mind this is that it often uncovers fraudulent or at least nefarious companies. And I do not have too much trouble with companies that put out research that, that do uncover a fraudulent behaviour. I mean, I think that's great. I mean, I think fraudulent companies should be uncovered. So, and I, I think they're entitled to to make money off their work. It's not free to do research. And if if they do research and it uncovers fraudulent companies and they make money off it, well, 
everyone's got to get paid somehow. And there's been plenty of examples of this in the past. So it obviously stinks if you were intending to sell your shares in a day that the news is released and the short selling report comes out. I mean, I, that sucks, but that's just bad luck. And at the end of the day, if, if, if these companies are, are wrong and the company underneath the stock is actually a good company, then the share price falling over the short term will have little impact on the business. And I think if you were a short selling firm putting out this research, you have to have a pretty high hit rate or else no one will trust you. You can't be putting out research and getting it wrong all the time or else you wouldn't have much of a following there'd be no point anyway so it it doesn't really bother me i guess where it might need to be regulated is is with firms that have large followings and i can think of one in the united states not going to name them because i don't want them to debate it with me but they have large they, they might have large social media followings for example they initiate a position they put out some research they blast everywhere on social media and they have such a following that the stock will crater and then you, you suspect after this reaction they they close out their position and when this happens i think the regulators need to make sure that they're playing by the rules but at the end of the day in, in, in every activity particularly in the financial markets there's going to be some bad actors so i guess the the final point in this is that even if you are right and you do a good job, it doesn't mean you'll make money from it. And you should really watch that, that documentary on Netflix as an, an example called Betting on Zero. And it's a great example of this. You know, Blackman did all the research, did the thousands of PowerPoint presentations, 200-page reports on Herbalife. And, you know, they actually ended up losing money on it. And it was a, a, a resulted in his funds significantly underperforming the market. So even if you do do something a good job or something in, in the short selling space it doesn't necessarily mean you make money it is fraught with risk so to summarize what what, what do i think of short selling you probably figured out that i don't I, I don't really participate in it but i don't really mind it either you know as far as i'm aware it, it can't be done in new zealand although i did see that a company had a a fund had a, a short position on heartland bank so they must have borrowed that from somewhere they may not have it that was a while ago because you, you, when you're borrowing a stock to short it, you need to have a, a, a margin lending brokerage industry, which, as you know, we just don't have. So I think that even if it was banned, people could still do it off. Even if short selling were to be banned, you could still do it by borrowing the stock off each other. So it is almost pointless banning it. And I also think that it has a place, when especially calling out fraudulent companies. Uh, good. I, I like it when fraudulent companies get... get get called out i think if the if the target company is actually operating properly and and is fairly valued then they don't really have anything to worry about as as warren buffett says a short seller cannot actually hurt you obviously there are no doubt bad actors actors out there that, that put out dodgy research with the intention of taking advantage of the price movement that it creates and and that like all other bad behavior needs to be stamped out but well, no, I think short selling can be a risky but legitimate way of making money and money in the markets and less people try it so maybe it's an easier way of making money in the markets and what watch betting on zero is as bill Ackman finds out even if you're incredibly good at it and you've got all the resources it doesn't necessarily mean that you will make money okay so i've i've, I've talked about short selling a lot longer than than what what i expected to 19 minutes now great um i, I hope that you enjoyed it and, and got something from it if, if you already knew about short selling it might have been a bit of a a bit depressing for you but i i do hope you got something out of it so one of the reasons of doing this type of episode this week 
was that there wasn't much in the way of interesting news on the NZX. So what I'll do is I'll do a little instalment, not as long as last week because we're already 19 minutes in, but an instalment, the second instalment from the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting, which is, like I said last week, Warren Buffett's investment vehicle. So I'll pick up where we left off. And the, the, the chat, a chap got up there and said he worked in alternative investments and he asked what he thought, is what their thoughts were of private and off-market investments, particularly in relation to borrowing. And I didn't find the answer that interesting, but there are a couple of good quotes and highlights which I'll read. Buffett said, A leveraged investment in a business is going to beat an unlevered investment in a good business a good bit of the time, which is pretty obvious. Buffett commented that if they had leveraged up Berkshire, then they would have made a lot more money over the years, but they they didn't want to risk it. And Buffett's always said that, you know, risking what you don't risking what you what you can't risk to to have what you don't need is insane and I guess that's what you're what you're referring to and Buffett then referred to long term capital management. If you've not heard the story of long term capital management, there's a great book I may have mentioned on the podcast called When Genius Failed. Look it up and download it and read it. I'd highly recommend that. It's it's a great illustration on the risks of leverage in financial markets. Um anyway Buffett commented that you had really, really smart people working with their own money and with years and years of experience with that they were doing with that they were doing and it all turned to pumpkins and mice. And we saw some of those people after it happened to them go out and, and, and do it again. So it's just some some great quotes there about leverage and, and risk in the markets and the way to think about things. And the quotes I read didn't really answer the, the chap's question, but like I said, it wasn't one of the most interesting questions. Warren was then asked about the Amazon purchase. So the Amazon purchase was made, they, they bought a small small amount of stock, stock for Berkshire anyway, like a billion dollars or so. And the Amazon purchase was made by an investment manager at Berkshire and it, and it wasn't Warren Buffett's own choice of investment so they've got a couple of investment managers working underneath Warren who make their own stock market decisions they've got some capital allocated to them and they do their own decisions and for some reason this made big headlines you know Berkshire Hathaway buying into Amazon you know it was sort of like all the Amazon followers dreamed to have it legitimized by Berkshire Hathaway so the question made the implication that this could change in practice for, for Berkshire away from value investing. And Warren's response was that all good investing is value investing. He used the example of Aesop saying that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, which I'll explain in a second, and figuring out the valuation equation using that. And I'm quoting directly here. You are putting out money now to get more later on, and you are making a calculation as to the probabilities of getting that money. And when will you, when will you get it? and what interest rates will be in between. And the same calculation goes into whether you are buying some bank at 70% of book value or whether you are buying Amazon at some very high multiple of reported earnings. <coughs> Excuse me. The considerations are identical when you buy Amazon as to other companies. In the end, it all goes back to Aesop, who in 600 BC said, said that a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. When we buy Amazon, we try to figure out whether there are three, four, or five in the bush. How long it will take to get to that bush? How certain he is that he's going to get into the bush? Is someone else going to come and take, or is someone else going to come and take, take that bush away? Despite all the equations you'll learn in business school, the success of investing is being able to figure out what is in the bush. And I just thought that's a, like, like most quotes from Warren Buffett, it was just a, a a great way of explaining it, whether it's worth outlaying that bird now 
for more birds in the future, essentially. And I did find Charlie's comment on this quite interesting. Charlie said, and I'm quoting here, Warren and I are a little bit older than some people. And we are not the most flexible probably in the whole world. And of course, something as extreme as this internet development happens and you don't catch and you don't catch it, then other people are going to blow by you. And I don't mind not having caught Amazon early. The guy is kind of a miracle worm worker. It's very peculiar. I give myself a pass on that. But I feel like a horse's ass for not identifying Google better. I think Warren feels the same way. We screwed up. Warren then chimes in and says, yeah, he is saying we blew it. And we did have some insights into that because we were using them and we were seeing the results they, the results produced and we saw that we were paying $10 per click or whatever it might have been to them for sending for something that had a marginal cost to them of exactly zero. And we saw that it was working for us. So what Warren's saying there is every time they clicked, it cost them money. It didn't cost Google anything. That's, that's a great business when you think about it. Charlie jumps in and says... We could see it in our own operations how well that Google advertising was working and we just sat there sucking our thumbs. So we are ashamed. We are trying to atone. Maybe Apple was atonement. So it's obviously an amusing way of saying things. I quite like how Charlie refers to the internet as this internet, internet develop happens and it's just a, it's just a, sums them up really. And the exchange shows two things for me. I mean, firstly... It, it, it's that great investors also make mistakes. So that should make you feel better. Everyone makes mistakes in investing. It's, it, the key thing is not letting those mistakes destroy you. And that goes back to what I was saying at the start of this segment on Berkshire Hathaway about them sort of shunning leverage because they didn't want any particular mistake to destroy them. And it's it's very hard to destroy yourself if you're not using leverage, you know, you can always live to fight another day. And, and that's essentially what they've done. And it also shows that you don't need to hit every ball for six to be successful in investing. I hope you like the cricket reference. And here are probably the, the two most successful and famous investors in history that they've turned $20 million into $500 billion. And they've presided over, you know, the most successful stock performance in a, in a you know, fifth what a fifty year period, whatever it is, and saying that they've missed two of the most stunningly successful companies over the last twenty years, and you'd think that to, in order to be as successful as what they have, that they'd have to pick the most successful companies, but that's not the case. And your response to this might be to go, oh well, they're ninety or whatever they are, they've just lost their touch, and and maybe they have, but and I, I don't think they have, but maybe they have. And but my bet is that if you took any twenty year period, you could point to the successful investments that they've missed. You know, IBM during the nineteen eighties, or some of the big oil plays, Exxon Mobil back in the day, or whatever it is. And and so I hope that it will, it will give you some solace to say if you never bought A two Milk, and it should teach you two things. Firstly, there will always be another pitch in the market. You know, to use the cricket analogy, there'll always be another delivery. You know, even if you get out one day, there'll be another delivery. And also, you do not necessarily need to to chase things if they pass you by. You know, you don't see them chasing after Google. They regret not buying it, but you don't see them chasing after to, to Google up to infinity, as as an example. Not that you shouldn't buy Google. You know, they're obviously a great company. You just need to think about the valuation. Anyway, so. 
that's it for the for the second part of the episode. We're at you know twenty seven odd minutes in the podcast now, so really should look to wrap it up for this week. Thanks again for listening to the podcast. As a reminder that nothing that I said today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to www.stopmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give it a like by searching on Facebook. Make sure also to share it with your friends. Oh, and you can find on Twitter these days as well. I keep forgetting that. If you want to email me, it is jeremy at stopmarketmovers.co.nz don't hesitate to send through an email. I like to re- love to receive listener questions and I do my best to respond to everyone. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin and this has been episode 44 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday the 14th of June 2019. I'll see you all again next week.